Welcome to Pelicanus. I'm your host, Austin Parker. Today's episode is about Haley Zemmel, staff scientist at Save the Bay in San Francisco. We're going to have Haley tell us about the innovative ways that they are thinking about the future of San Francisco Bay, for the people that live in the adjacent communities, as well as the wildlife that inhabits the wetlands that ring the bay. I'm Haley Zemmel, and I'm staff scientist for Save the Bay's Habitat Restoration Team. So as staff scientist, I help to support our restoration efforts. When I say habitat restoration, we restore the areas that we call transition zone areas between the estuary and the upland habitats. So it's a lot of pulling invasive species and planting natives, and but we we do the entire restoration process um, ourselves with the help of thousands of volunteers every year. I guess so what I, what I do is help to analyze and monitor how these species that we install, how they're doing at these sites and are they providing proper function and, uh, and then we reassess our plant palette every year to make sure that it's, it makes sense. We don't want to go forward with a plan that we developed a couple years ago that doesn't really make sense and we can see in the field that it's not making sense and our data is telling us that something needs to change. So that's kind of my role is how, how do we uh, make sure that we're, we're conducting the best restoration practices that we, can, that we can do. Save the Bay has dedicated itself to protecting and preserving the San Francisco Bay because it is a special place. But as with any area where humans have moved in and lived for thousands of years, there's going to be some issues. The bay has been inhabited by people since uh, native populations lived around the bay. And there's evidence to suggest that native populations used the bay for its resources. And even there's even some evidence that maybe they even overexploited some things, some resources of the bay. But now that we have over 7 million residents around the Bay, overexploitation of resources is detrimental to the existence of the Bay. As the population started to grow around the San Francisco Bay, people started to dump their garbage and factory shorelines would dump their toxic waste right into the bay. Raw sewage was being dumped right into the bay, and it just became a really disgusting place. To it, There were signs that said hazardous, <laughs> fish, not safe to eat. So it, it really was not looked at as a resource anymore other than a dump. And so by the mid-1900s, the bay had, had become unsafe to visit and was providing no resources. By the mid-1950s, the Army Corps of Engineers conducted a study on behalf of the Department of Commerce to determine how much of the existing bay was shallow enough to be filled in for development. Because people were thinking, this thing is disgusting. Why, let's make use of it. Let's make it, <laughs> let's make it into something that we actually want. So of course, let's fill in this disgusting pit and make it something useful. So after that study was conducted, they found that 60% of the existing bay was shallow enough to be filled in for development. And a depiction of that study was published in the Oakland Tribune in 1959. 
It said on top, bay or river, question mark. What do we want? (laughs) But how does Save the Bay fit into this history of destruction of the San Francisco Bay? Save the Bay has a really exciting grassroots history. The founders of my organization were three Berkeley women, Esther Gulick, Kay Kerr, and Sylvia McLaughlin. They saw this depiction in the Oakland Tribune and knew they had to do something to stop it because this depiction showed that 60% of the existing bay would be filled in to just leave a narrow shipping channel. So they mobilized and they were able to collect $1 from thousands of Bay Area residents. They formed the Save San Francisco Bay Association, which is now Save the Bay. After four years of, um, of petitioning and, and getting people involved, they were able to get the state of California to declare the San Francisco Bay a public entity and put a moratorium on Bayfill. And that was, that was a huge success because now not just anyone could just back up their dump truck and dump trash into the bay. We have pictures of people doing that. But they then also realized there was nobody regulating what anybody could do with the bay. And so my founders and the organization uh, were instrumental in helping to form the first coastal zone management agency ever, the Bay Conservation and Development Commission, which or people usually just call it BCDC, which this is their 50th year anniversary, BCDC. We actually have a, a picture of our founders standing behind Governor Reagan as he's signing BCDC into legislation. So Save the Bay has a very rich history. When and where they literally saved the bay. But after an organization that has a single goal accomplishes that goal, what do they do next? A lot of what had been filled in were the wetland areas that ring the San Francisco Bay. That's clearly the first place you're going to start. They're the the shallowest areas the easiest to fill in and build on top of. So unfortunately, the 90% of wetlands that ring the Bay Delta estuary have been filled in or diked. So those are areas that we're actually looking to now to restore, to help not just for, for wildlife, but for basic human survival and protection from flooding. And in the face of sea level rise, this is becoming more and more of an issue. So even though Save the Bay was able to stop bay fill, many of the surrounding wetlands of the bay were already filled in or destroyed. So knowing that and seeing the destruction, what needs to be done? How can an organization fix this? Back in 1999, over 100 scientists and planners and engineers got together to determine how much wetland needs to be restored to have healthy wetland habitats in the Bay Area. From that gathering, they produced a report called the Baylands Ecosystem Habitat Goals Report, and 
That report stated a goal for the Bay Area to restore and conserve 100,000 acres of healthy wetland habitat, and that's to help preserve important wildlife corridors and and to think about an entire systems approach of wetland habitats. But at that time, there were about 50,000 acres of healthy wetlands, a a little over 50,000 acres of, of healthy wetland habitat in the Bay Area. So we needed to conserve that 55,000 and restore an additional 45,000. A good portion of those areas that need to be restored are former salt ponds that have been levied off and diked off from natural tidal flow to form salt evaporation ponds. And since then, based on that report, the largest wetland restoration project on the West Coast was put into action. And this is the South Bay Salt Pond Restoration Project, which aims to restore 15,000 acres of former salt ponds in the South Bay. They've already restored 1,600 acres. But when she says wetland restoration, what exactly does that mean? Wetland restoration, a lot of it, is oftentimes just breaching levees and letting natural tidal flow come in. And the San Francisco Bay is an awesome seed bank, so it's carrying all those seeds that, that the wetland needs. So there, there is some plant in, installation of native plants in the actual wetland, but a lot of it comes back on its own. This is another example of nature's resiliency. Coastal wetlands need tidal flow in order to maintain a healthy, diverse habitat. In the San Francisco Bay, many of these wetlands were cut off from their lifeblood. But fortunately, some of these areas are able to come back to life with the return of these tides. It's disheartening when you meet people that don't care and only care about the bottom line and the dollar. But now we're in a time where it doesn't It doesn't matter if you care about wildlife or not, or if you realize how important these natural habitats are to human existence. It doesn't matter if you get that, because you get that your house is going to be underwater, and you see everything already happening in the news, and we're already seeing coastal communities flooded, not by rain, but the ocean level you can see is under a highway in some places. Climate change is now. And organizations like Save the Bay aren't worrying about what we're going to do in 50 years or 100 years. They're trying to think of tangible projects that they can start now to mitigate climate change and sea level rise issues. But they also realize that the fear factor, the the doom and gloom attitude, it only goes so far. So how do they get past that? The fear factor only goes so far. What can we do? Because if there's not anything we can do, I think people feel overwhelmed and they think, well, I'm going to die anyway. And that that doesn't necessarily need to be how it is. There are a lot of solutions. There are a lot of things we can do right now. I have the answers of, of why it's bad and why it's wrong and how we got there, but I like to talk about what we can do. And so I think that's the message right there, that if if you want it to happen and and everybody wants it to happen then look to the people who are looking into it and have some answers and let's start let's start talking numbers and and start thinking about how we can do this so that's a fantastic positive message but let's do that let's start talking numbers what is it actually going to take to fix these problems 
we, it was estimated that restoration of the 55,000 remaining acres to conserve and restore would cost $1.43 billion to restore. So that's, that's a problem. <laughs> but again, what are the answers? You know, so another problem is the San Francisco Bay hasn't received a lot of federal funding, especially relative to what other, what other wetland restoration projects are receiving. The Great Lakes has received over $3,100 per square mile of federal funding. Chesapeake Bay has received over 1,000 per square mile. Puget Sound, over 1,500. And the San Francisco Bay has received $80.32 per square mile for federal funding. So that's a huge disparity in federal funds. Compared to these other places, the San Francisco Bay has gotten next to nothing. But okay, that's a problem. But what is the plan? The San Francisco Bay Restoration Authority plans to vote pretty soon to put on the ballot, the June 2016 ballot, a measure that would be a $12 parcel tax. So it's a flat tax for anyone that owns real property in the San Francisco Bay across the, the nine counties in the Bay Area. When anyone talks about an increase in taxes, it's a natural reaction to be a bit cautious. But how much are we talking about right now? $12 a year for 20 years. It doesn't seem like a lot to me, and actually some, some proponents of it think that they should be trying to get more money because there's, there's a lot more that can be done. But that's, that's a real solution to a seemingly insurmountable problem. So those are the kinds of positive messages that, that we want to get out there, that yes, these things seem huge and horrible, but there are answers that, that are possible. So let's make this happen. So if that happens, it'll be on the June 16 ballot and people will vote for it. But how does Save the Bay fit into this political puzzle? My organization complements that project by providing healthy, functional transition zone habitat. And we call it estuarine terrestrial transition zone, from the estuary up to the upland habitat. These areas of transition are really important for maintaining biodiversity, providing refuge for marsh animals that need somewhere to go when the water rises. And these areas are also really important, important historically and will be important in our future for wetland migration. Wetlands naturally migrate, or move up and down over time, depending on the sea level. They've adapted the ability to find the most suitable area to exist given their conditions. But the things that she's talking about, there's something called ecosystem services. So we define ecosystem services as the processes of ecosystems and their material and energy outputs that benefit people. So like food and water, building materials, natural fuels, flood and disease control, recreation and spiritual healing, pollution filtration and nutrient cycling, and biological diversity. Let's talk about exactly how wetlands provide these services. Wetlands are a really important 
ecosystem for a lot of reasons. They're important nursery grounds for fishes. They're important uh, stopping grounds for migratory birds. And the San Francisco Bay gets um, over a million migratory birds annually through the uh, Pacific Flyway. It's a special habitat with, with unique characteristics and especially the wetlands that we're talking about, tidal wetlands um, in the Bay Area, they're brackish, which means they're, they're not completely salty, they're not completely fresh. It's a little bit in between because also the San Francisco Bay collects 40% of California's water through the Bay Delta. With the amount of fresh water mixing in with the salty ocean water, and these specialized areas that wetlands exist, the diversity of the flora and fauna in these areas is staggering. These areas that are so specialized are really important for maintaining biodiversity. These are the areas where the wildlife that live there are specifically Adapted These plant assemblages that are there, they're specifically adapted to live in this crazy place that's dynamic. And no other types of species can live there. So this is important. This is, where, this is their niche that is carved out and helps to increase biodiversity, not just, for, not just for dealing with being dry sometimes and wet others, but also the salinity gradients that they deal with. And these plants and animals have to be able to deal with that. But being able to deal with that helps to hold their spot in, in this competitive world that they live in. They've got a spot where nobody else can live. So these wetlands and transition zones are really special places. They provide so many services, even if you don't care about wildlife. So wetlands are really important to people too, and they have been throughout history. I mean, humans, are all too often disconnected from nature. And so being able to have these places that are set aside for them to go and be a part of nature is really important. Aside from that, wetlands provide important flood protection during storm events and during uh, times of high tides and, and large wave action. This is a function of wetlands. They are already doing that now. But the problem is uh, we've largely filled in and, and built on these, these transition zone areas that would allow a wetland to migrate as it needs to. So now these, the, the wetlands are getting flooded, the water's coming closer inland into our communities, and we're already seeing that. Sausalito is flooded during king tides. Their, their streets are covered in water on a sunny day in December. If you combine that with heavy wave action and storms, that can be really dangerous conditions. So we're already seeing the result of building in and filling in our bay. And so now we need to figure out um, if our only other option is moving humans away from the coast, what, is, what, is, what can we do that helps humans stay here? And one of the things that, that we've realized is we need to restore these, these areas that will act as flood protection. So this is amazing. Save the Bay is looking into the future. They plan to restore these areas to protect their adjacent communities. 
essentially preparing for imminent sea level rise. They're not part of the debate about whether sea level rise is going to happen or climate change is real. They look at the facts, they look at the science, and they realize this is going to happen. Let's adapt as a community, as people, and figure this out. But how exactly will wetlands save the adjacent communities? Wetlands are able to hold a lot of water. They, they act as an amazing sponge. Wetlands also filter contaminants and, and even just trash from the shoreline, keep them from getting into the water. They act as an amazing filter. Additionally, the vegetation in those wetlands help to slow down wave action. So it's called wave attenuation benefits. Um, and that, that helps to slow down waves and water. And then just sheer distance of human of communities to the, to the bay, separated by these large vegetated areas, that's going to help protect humans from the hazards that are associated from sea level rise. So we're expected to see more storm events and these events are expected to be more hazardous. So we are thinking in terms of how can, how can we get the best use of whatever wetlands are able to be restored now. There's no doubt about it that climate change and sea level rise are scary. They make us feel as if there's nothing we can do and as if it's beyond our scope of control. But Haley and Save the Bay have shown that it, all it takes is some sound science, innovative thinking, collaboration, and most importantly, the right attitude. They're doing what they can with what they have to figure out this problem. They're doing something that makes us uniquely human. They're adapting. But what makes Haley do this? What makes her tick? What made her take on this task? I've always been interested in making sure that what I do is right. There's always been something inside me that doesn't want to upset the balance of what should be, whoever determines that, you know, but I do think that that's kind of what drives the inner me. And since there isn't a specific answer to what is right and what is wrong in any, any path of life, I decided early on that I wanted to get to the bottom of things myself. And so that's what led me to science. My original path was toxicology, uh, aquatic toxicology. I, I wanted to, I had, this, I had this grand idea of going out on boats and collecting fish from a population that was unhealthy and taking it into the lab and figuring out what was wrong with it. And I, I did a lot of that. I did my master's thesis on that. And, and as much as I loved that work, I found myself frustrated more and more when I would see fabulous, well-documented information not being used by the people writing the decisions and, and managing these natural areas. And so then I realized, okay, wait, maybe I want to be more on the implementation side of thing. And, and that's, what, that's what brought me to Save the Bay, because in my position, I'm able to see what's going wrong with the work that we're doing and immediately think of solutions and test them and 
test those solutions and then put into practice what makes the most sense for what we're doing. So uh, I, I think my career and the way I think about the environment is, is ever-evolving, but I do love this intersection that we seem to be in where economists, uh, social scientists, researchers, managers, policymakers are all coming together, stakeholders coming together in one room and trying to find a compromise and because of that, I think we also learn from each other. I know that I have. I've been in those rooms. And I've been able to see firsthand what this fisher is dealing with or what this policymaker has to deal with with their political timeframes. And, and coming from my academic, my largely academic background, it was really enlightening for me to see that. So I think what brought me to science is also what keeps me evolving. And what keeps her evolving helps her stay grounded. I guess <laughs> I'm going to be a dork and say I like adaptively managing my life <laughs> and who I am. And so what makes sense and, and think about where the need is, what my skills are, and, and how I can, I can best contribute to what should be whatever that is. <laughs> and what should be might constantly be changing as well. Taking in those constant adjustments, where does she get her inspiration from? My inspiration comes from success stories. Because I, I think I, like most people, start to feel overwhelmed with problems in this world and what can we do and being able to see something that someone just had a vision and sometimes you hear these stories and you think, wow, I never would have thought they could have made that happen. And they did. And, and that's the history of my organization is, is an example of one of those stories. I, I just wouldn't have thought that three women back in the mid fifties would have been able to save the bay, literally that then gives me hope, makes me realize next time I know something should happen a certain way, when I have that confidence, just do it. And when people tell you you can't, just do it. <laughs> Find somebody that will do it with you. She finds confidence in the precedent that has been set before her. But who are these people that she's talking about? The founders of my organization are my professional heroes. Um, honestly, Peter, Peter Douglas from the California Coastal Commission, uh, he, uh, you know, just hearing, hearing his tales and he, hearing his path that he took uh, to become a leader of, of one of the strongest agencies in California that protect coastal shoreline. My favorite aspect of my work is the continued learning and collaboration that it requires among uh, across disciplines. Environmental issues are so complex and require collaboration. Um, so I get to hear 
the professional opinions of scientists and engineers, policymakers, land managers, stakeholders, and advocates all in one room. And, and sometimes those conversations can be amazingly productive. Sometimes not, <laughs> but it, it, is, it, it is my favorite part of my work is, is working across disciplines and learning, and that helps me to continually evolve, evolve and then it also, it also helps to shape how I think about my work and helps me to make sure that my work is more relevant, more applicable, and um, possible. We're constantly going to face problems, but inherently all problems are solvable. It just takes the proper knowledge, resources, and attitude to get us there. It's, it's really interesting. I feel that there has been a massive evolution of thinking and um, ways of accomplishing things since I started in this field as an undergrad. Honestly, I think the, ec the economic downturn had a huge role in forcing collaboration, which I think is one of the most positive things that have come from that, if I'm right about it. But now researchers, one might have a boat, the other might have a mapping tool that they need. Now they can work together because before they would just try to get their own boat or their own mapping tool. But now um, it was if they wanted to get their research done, they had to be a little bit more creative. And, and now that, that means that they're going to have to put this other researcher's name on their paper when they publish. But I think that's a good thing in a lot of ways because it also brings, it brings a lot of smart people into one room. And, and that's where the answers are being made. Things are not going to change without collaboration without agencies working together. And it's super exciting to see that actually happening. You know, we all have, we ha all have these moments throughout our lives where we're like, what am I gonna do with my life? What am I gonna do with my life? And especially when it's not a set path, you're not sure where you're going. You're trying to make something happen because you think it should. You're getting a lot of pushback. You're not, you're not receiving a lot of immediate reward. This field is difficult, but you have to push through and try to see the forest through the trees. And it's people like Haley and her colleagues at Save the Bay that are changing the world. This is what I'm doing with my life. This is, this is, this is my life. And that, that made me feel a little bit at peace because I think we all, all of us that choose environmental science as a field, that's exactly what you deal with. You're not sure where you're going to end up. You're not sure where that end point is. But after years of doing it, you do start to get a sense of, yes, this is where I belong. This is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm doing great things. I feel good about what I'm doing. This is, this is it. It's still in transition. It's still fluid, but I'm going somewhere, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm proud of it. Yeah. 
I'd like to thank Haley Zemmel for talking with me and sharing her stories and her passion, as well as her organization, Save the Bay. They truly are doing some great work. Producers on this episode are Austin Parker and Taylor Parker. If you'd like to continue this conversation with us, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Pelicanus Radio, or check out our website at pelicanus.org, P-E-L-E-C-A-N-U-S dot org. Thanks for listening. Check back next month for another conservation conversation. Conservation.